Let's take our Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 22. This is our last week in the series. I hope this series has been a blessing. I know I've had so much fun studying um, for the series and have learned a lot about the book of Joshua. Uh, but we're in chapter 22 this morning. Remember last week we jumped ahead to Joshua's last words because we were celebrating seven years as a church. And uh, I felt like that uh, word really applied to last Sunday, but this Sunday we're dropping back a chapter to chapter 22, and we're going to look at what happened right before Joshua spoke. Chapter 22 really uh, represents um, a very uh, final test, kind of at the, at the end of this long journey that they've taken out of Egypt. We know all that, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the trip through the Red Sea. We know all that account from a historical standpoint. They finally got chapter 1 to the Jordan River. They crossed over. We studied all that. And throughout this time in the book of Joshua, they have really been learning how to obey and learning how to trust because for hundreds of years, they had not done that. And we know that after this, when we get into the kings, um, that there's going to be a lot of wavering back and forth. But, but Joshua was really the time when Israel learned how to obey. And, and that is a learning process. It's not something, when you raise kids, right, they don't just obey from the womb, right? They hit about 18 months, and there's a little challenge there, like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. I know you're bigger than me, but I've got a lot of power too. And, and sometimes we do that as believers. We, we need to get back to the process of learning. So they're, they're learning how to trust. And chapter 22 is kind of the, the final test and the key test of whether they're really spiritually sensitive and whether they are really serious about walking with the Lord going forward. Now, I don't think at the time they knew this was a test from the Lord, but the Lord doesn't always tell us what he's doing, right? He doesn't always telegraph it and say, hey, Paul, now I'm going to teach you how to trust. Or, hey, Paul, now I'm going to teach you uh, a new lesson in obedience. Why does the Lord do that? I think that frustrates us sometimes. That why doesn't God more upfront tell me exactly what he's going to do? Well, part of that is he wants to see our immediate reaction. He wants to see our natural reaction, whether we're living by the new nature that's sanctified and holy and spirit-filled and spirit-controlled, whether that will be our, our immediate response or whether we're going to react in our old nature, how we used to act, how we used to think, uh, controlled by selfishness and pride and things like that. So a lot of times God will put a situation in our lives that prompts us, how are you going to respond to this? And he not only sees our response, even though he already knows it, but he wants us to see our response. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, what's my first nature? Anger, hostility, saying something, you know, you jerk or whatever like that. I know, I'm from the north, so that, that comes out, right? The south are like, oh, bless your heart. You just, you take that. You go ahead. It's fine. But inside in the south, they're saying bless your heart, but it's not what they're thinking. Trust me. So when somebody does something simple like that, what's my natural response? Then the response of my nature, is it sanctified? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Or is it old self? So this is what God's doing all throughout the Old Testament and even throughout the New Testament, but especially with Israel. And that's kind of a test that we have to, to say to ourselves, what nature am I living by on a consistent basis? Now, you remember that Joshua said at the end of last week, you need to choose. You need to make a decision. 
And, and that wasn't, hey, in the moment now that we're kind of in, I'm about to die and, and go away, and you guys are going to be on your own now, and we're going to get into Judges. This, you need to decide in this moment. He was saying, choose who you're going to serve permanently, consistently, every day. Who are you going to serve? What's going to be the nature that you live by? And he said in 2415, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but every single day of our lives, that's how we're going to live. Now how effectively uh, you and I do that often shows up not only in our own behavior, but it shows up in how we react to the attitude and behaviors of others. Now, I want to walk real carefully this morning, and the Spirit of God, and I've been praying this, really needs to give us great clarity and insight into His Word, because I don't want us to, to misinterpret anything this morning that we shouldn't. Up front, as we talk about this subject this morning, we need to establish that this study is not about nagging, it's not about um, uh, spiritual helicoptering or, or being judgmental. What we're going to study this morning is about holy accountability. It's about ministering to each other so that we will walk by the Spirit together and that out of love and concern that you and I don't fall back. My biggest concern for you, not just as the congregation, but as my brothers and sisters in Christ is that you don't fall back. And the greatest uh, difficulty for pastors, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, the greatest difficulty for pastors is not preparing sermons and it's not counseling and it's not long hours. It's seeing people that should be walking with the Lord, not walking with the Lord. You ask any pastor in the world, they'll tell you that's their biggest sadness. So my job as your pastor, my job as your friend, my job as your brother in Christ is to make sure you don't fall back. And you are accountable to me on that. At the same time, I'm accountable to you as your pastor, friend, and brother in Christ that you hold me accountable that I don't fall back. And that's what we're talking about here in chapter 22, that out of love and concern for each other, and so the body and the witness of the gospel is not hurt. Now, unfortunately, I would say the Church of Jesus Christ has not done uh, the greatest job of getting this right. And so much of the public perception of us, whether it's fair or unfair, is that um, Christians are nosy, they're harsh, they're judgmental, they're critical, and they're intolerant. Of course, the irony of that is the things that we're being accused of by the world are the very things that they're doing themselves. But that irony is lost on them that they have an agenda and that they want to limit uh, what we do and what we believe and how we practice. But listen, that's not the issue this morning. If we are harsh, if we are condescending, if we're proud, then we are not doing what the Lord's called us to do. God does not ever call us to be harsh and critical and nasty and judgmental and arrogant. We're better than you. We know more than you. We have the Bible. You don't, you heathens. That, I don't ever see Jesus talking like that. The only people I see Jesus talking harshly to are the religious people that weren't living for the Lord. He doesn't go to unbelievers and say, you nasty heathens. We've got to be careful of our language. We've got to be careful of our attitude. But if we do see sin, we need to be broken by it. And we need to understand that 
we need to react to the world and to people that don't know Christ out of love and of a genuine concern that they are lost, that they are headed to an eternity that is separated from God. Not just hell is torment, not just hell is fire and isolation and darkness. Listen, that's less than being separated from God forever and knowing you could have had a relationship with him. So we have to be broken by that. We have to be humbled by that. And as we minister to people, we have to minister out of love and out of edification. And as we minister within the body, within each other, because that's our external ministry, as we minister in the body, there has to be a love and concern and edification for one another. And where we see stumbling, where we see falling back, it is our job to hold each other accountable. And that's the internal ministry. And the internal ministry will affect the external ministry. Our words to people, our taking bags to people, our telling people God loves you and Jesus died for you and, and you can be saved forever if you trust in him, all of that will be empty and hollow if they look at us with each other and see division and strife and hatred and judgmentalism and lack of support, right? That, that's not going to work. People won't care about the love of Christ if they don't see the love of Christ in the body. So we have to make sure we take care of the internal before we get to the external. And this is a crisis, I believe, in the church. Uh, not this church necessarily, but the church as a whole. I believe we've allowed a lot of things to take place and a lot of spiritual and doctrinal latitude that, that has been unchecked. And I think the Lord's going to really hold us accountable for that. So what we're going to look at this morning, it's kind of a long introduction, is, is what these nine and a half tribes, and I'll explain that in a minute, what these nine and a half tribes do. And I think the, the Lord really wants to draw our attention to this and, and really show this as a model of what a healthy church body should look like, and then we're going to make some application not only for our church, but for our family. So let's kind of establish the setting for this text. If you could put the map up for me. In verses 1 to 8, let me just summarize that real quick. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh, all right, they, they leave uh, the, the, the nations on the western side. Okay, so the western side is the left part of your screen. The western side of the Jordan, which runs the length of the thing, and they go over on the right. You can see that, right? The yellow, the green, and the kind of beige. That's half of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. Now those tribes settled on the west, uh, excuse me, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now you say, well, why, why did that happen? Shouldn't they all be in Canaan? Because Canaan is on the western side of the Jordan. But the reason for this was that going back to Numbers 32, before they entered into the Promised Land, these tribes wanted to occupy the eastern side of Jordan. The reason for that is they had a lot of flocks and herds and livestock. And the, the eastern side of the Jordan River is much more conducive to having flocks. Because once you get over to Jericho and you start up toward Jerusalem, that is all uh, rocky desert, dry, arid. There's very little water, which is why when you go down to the Jordan River, it's such a, a refreshing thing. When you go to the Sea of Galilee, it's like heaven because everything is beautiful and green and blue and lush and, and fruitful. 
but but when you're east, when you're west of the Jordan River and you're heading up to Jerusalem, it is just rugged terrain. So it was not a place where you're going to bring a lot of cattle and sheep and livestock to, to graze. So these three tribes say, hey, when we go to the promised land, Moses, we'd like to occupy the eastern half. And we'd like to settle there and have a lot of uh, fertile area for our tribes. So Moses in Numbers 32 says, that's fine. When we get there, you can do that. But my concern is, if you guys are over on the other side of the river, when we're going in to conquer the land, you're not going to help us. And we need you to help us conquer the land. So they make a deal and they say, tell you what, we will, we will saddle up, we'll get ready for war, we'll help you conquer the nation. And when we conquer, and when we're all settled, then we want to go back on the other side of the river. Moses says, fine. So, so that's our context here for what happens in verse 9. So now Israel, thank you for the map. Now Israel is spread through the land. Now all the nations are settled in. You can kind of see that. And now we get to verse 9. And once that happens, because the enemy likes to mess with us, right? Once that happens, they hit kind of a crisis uh, of, of national proportions, all right? Look at verse 9. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan to go to the land of Gilead, all right? We saw that on the map. To the land of their possession, which they had possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses, Numbers 32. When they came to the region, verse 32, of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard it said, Behold, the sons of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of Jordan, on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Now, this is a seemingly innocuous event, right? They settle the land, they capture it, God blesses them, and now they decide, all right, it's time for us to go home. It's not time for us to go settle. You guys are in your little places. It's time for us to go back to our places, and, and we're going to worship the Lord. So just like we're doing this morning, they, they build an altar, and they, and they worship the Lord, and, and everything seems great. On, on face value, this seems to be an awesome act of devotion and praise. All throughout the Old Testament, people would build altars to the Lord and they'd sacrifice and they'd praise God. So, so now Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they go over there and they settle down and the first thing they want to do is to build an altar. They want to honor the Lord for all he's done. So it's a little surprising when we get to verse 12 and we see that the other nine and a half tribes hear about it and they immediately gather together and say, we've got to go to war against our brothers and sisters. Now what in the world is going on here? Why is that the response to something that looks so right about honoring the Lord? Now this is why I love studying Scripture. Because passages like this just intrigue us and they cause us to ask questions about the text that lead to greater insight. 
Here's an event that took place thousands of years ago in a place we'll never visit, among people we'll never meet, over an odd dispute that, that doesn't seem to make sense because it seems like it's spiritually honorable. And yet by studying this in 2017, we see some awesome truths and some helpful application about holiness and about accountability as a church and as families. So let's ask some questions of the text, okay? When you study Scripture, when I study Scripture, don't just read and say, well, I did my 20 minutes and I'm good and now I can go on with the day. Write things down. Always study Scripture with a pen and a notebook. So what are the questions that come out of this text? And we don't have to dive deep to find some very significant questions that need to be answered. First of all, why was it wrong for them to build an altar? Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all built altars. So, so why do these two and a half tribes seem to be in trouble for building an altar to the Lord? And second, why do the other nations, are, are they overreacting? Is, are, are, what's going on here? Are they jealous? What, what's happening? Or is there something we don't see at face value that's very serious about this action? Why is it so serious, third question, that they're willing to go to war against their countrymen? Are they actually going to do that? And fourth, why are these two and a half tribes, how, how are they going to react? When they hear that all the nations, all the tribes are assembled at Shiloh, are, are they now going to get their back up and say, well, they're not going to come against us? Is there, is there civil war brewing here? Another question. Why does this happen now? After all the success, all the blessing, all the spreading out in the land that God had promised, all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, why now? Now, we just came up with five questions that are right out of the text, and those are just a couple. But, but what we do when we look at those questions is it causes us to dig deeper into the text. And how many people know that finding the answer is really going to help us understand the passage? We could read this and go, well, that's kind of weird. They had a little fight and they weren't happy. Okay, well, you know, on to my day. Time to go to work. Or we can say, wait a second, time out. I want to know what's going on here. I want to know what's, what's happening here. Why is this taking place? Well, let's answer some of the questions. The first fact we need to know is that when the Lord instructed his people to build a tabernacle in the wilderness, okay? As they're going through the wilderness, God says, you need a tent of meeting. You need a, a place. I'm going to call it a tabernacle, okay? We know the word tabernacle because it's in our church's name. We're going to build a tabernacle, and this will be the place where my presence will come down, and I will meet with you. So that was part of the reason why we love that name for this church. We wanted to be a place of meeting. We wanted to be a place where you came and I came and, and, and the Lord's presence was here. And we met with the Lord. How many want that to be true? Okay, so, so all the tribes would set up around the tabernacle, three, 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 and the tabernacle would sit in the middle, and the manifest presence of God would come down into the tabernacle, and Moses would go in and meet with God, and his face would be glowing as he'd come out, and they'd have to cover his face because he had been in the presence of God. This was a powerful thing. So God says, when you set up the tabernacle, the place of meeting, there needs to be a brazen altar and an altar of incense. 
And from Exodus 27 to Joshua 1, he gave them detailed instructions on how they were supposed to worship on these two altars. Because this was the place of worship. This was where they came to worship the Lord at the tabernacle. Cool concept, right? So, so the people would come and God's presence would be there and they would worship. And he says the only sacrifices that are to be made are at the tabernacle. So these nine and a half tribes hear that the two and a half tribes have built an altar. And they say, wait a second. God made it clear from the time we left Egypt and built the tabernacle to the time right now, he made it abundantly clear that the only altar was supposed to be at the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle's not over there on the east side of the Jordan. So they get, as my daughter would say, angsty. They're like, wait a second. Hold on. Got to gather. Need a meeting. Uh, this is not right. Because we're only supposed to build altars at the tabernacle. So they say, I wonder, if, I wonder if they're going off track. I wonder if something's taking place. Is this a little spiritual rebellion going on? But, but we're concerned because they are going to offend the Lord and they're going to be subject to discipline and that's not a good start. And if they're subject to discipline, we've seen this before and we'll read it in a minute. If they're subject to discipline, then we're subject to discipline. And the enemy is going to see an opening, and he's going to try to exploit it. We never, ever want to give the enemy an opening, right? We never want to give him any kind of a foothold. They're living in victory, and now what does the devil do? Well, it's create a little tension. Now, it seems perfectly right. Build an altar, how would the enemy, why would the enemy ever say build an altar? Well, the enemy's not really involved in this decision, and we need to see why they made this decision. Because he's going to twist something right and make it look like there's sin taking place and stir up things and cause people to fight with each other and create dissension and disunity. And guess what? In all of that, he's getting their attention off of the Lord. So look at what happens. Look at verse 13. Then the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So the nine and a half go to the three and a half. And they send Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one chief for each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel. So one of each tribe. Each one was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. They came to Reuben and Gad and Manasseh to the land of Gilead and spoke with them, saying, verse 16, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this unfaithful act which you've committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord to this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. 
they see this sin, this, this potential sin, as so egregious that they're willing to fight their own countrymen. And it says in verse 12, the whole congregation was in this. This wasn't just a couple leaders said, you know, we need to deal with this. This was everybody. They all gathered and said, this is wrong. Now stop for a second, because isn't that a wonderful thing? How long did it take Israel to get to the point where they saw something and they went, wait a second, that's wrong. All through the wilderness, they're building golden calves, they're complaining, the rebellion, they're trying to overthrow Moses, they're complaining against Aaron, they're just griping and mumbling and dying and griping and mumbling and dying and griping and mumbling and dying, never saying we're not doing right. Now, all of a sudden, they see one thing that seems a little off, they go, wait, 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 stop a minute, this is wrong, that's growth. Growth in our lives needs to be every day we're more sensitive to the Spirit. Every day we're more aware of sin. Every day we look at sin and go, nope, you're not having any place in my life today. You're not having any room, enemy. I'm not going there. I want to walk with the Lord. So the whole congregation, this is wonderful, is, is gathered to confront the issue. But I want you to notice how they go about it. Because there are four very wise actions that they utilize. Look back at the text. It says, first, they sent the high priest's son to intercede. That's a picture of Christ. They send the son and they say, we need to go with, with, the, with, the, with the leader, the spiritual leader of the nation. We're going to send his son and we want him to mediate and intercede. Then they bring representatives of each of the ten tribes because the Lord had established that pattern before and they wanted to show we're unified on this. Look, we got one representative, one leader from every tribe. We're coming to you with the priest. And notice how they center the message, verse 16, on the word of the Lord and on the law of the Lord, which is always the right way to go. If you are holding someone accountable, if you have to, unfortunately, confront somebody for sin, don't go in swinging with opinion and bias. Well, I think it's wrong, and my uncle did this, and I look at that. No. Center it on the Word of God. This is what the Word says. You can't ever go wrong if it's in here, right? Brother, I don't want to approach you on this. I'm sorry. But the Word says this, and the Word teaches us this. And if I'm going to be your brother in Christ, or I'm going to be your sister in Christ, I, I, I'm not coming in. I got my own problems. I got my own faults. You could make a list for me, but let me tell you, I see something going on, and the Word of God says this, and we're accountable to this. We're accountable to the Holy Spirit that wrote this book. Anytime we have to do this, the word has to be central. And then look at the fourth thing they do. They cite past experiences to show the fallacy of disobedience and the blessing of obedience. They're logical, they're rational, they're calm, they're humble because they have finally realized after all these years that their actions impact the lives of other people. And their actions impact the lives of other believers. Notice down in verse 20, we didn't read it. They mention Achan. You remember Achan? 
the one who hid the treasure after they defeated Jericho, they, they suffered because of his sin. They refer to Peor back, I think it's 16 or 17. That, that, that's an incident in Numbers 25 where a prophet was supposed to, um, supposed to confront the nation and he kind of didn't. And there was uh, a, a, a leaning where the people started to then intermingle with the Moabites and worship their gods because he didn't hold them accountable. The, the people say there are two specific times where we didn't follow the word of the Lord. Where we didn't hold each other accountable. Achan and Peor, and, and it became a problem. So it's understandable when we get to verse 16 that, that they go to these seemingly rogue tribes and they say, what are you doing? Wait, stop. Why are you building an altar? Why are, why are you doing what is disobedient to the word of God? Don't you know that this is going to bring uh, God's discipline on us? That God's going to get angry with us? Because you are in rebellion. Now you say, well, they jumped the gun, especially when you read the rest of the passage. Well, they jumped the gun. They, they shouldn't have assumed. Well, they don't really assume. They're following what the word of the Lord says. They're saying God set out specific guidelines. Listen, if you approach me about something and say, Paul, you're not doing the right thing, and, and here's what the Word of God says, then that has to be my first response. Am I obeying the Word? Are you right? Now, if I have an explanation like they do, then it's okay. And I'm not going to be offended that you came to me with the Word of God. You come to me with opinion, we have a problem. Well, I think you're wrong. Well, show me it in the Word. Well, I can't. Well, then, let's buy lunch and not talk about this. Because if it's not in the Word, it's your opinion. It's your bias. Well, look at what happens here. This is a beautiful text. They are coming out of a passion and out of a desire and out of experience Look, we don't want to go through this again. We remember Achan very well. We remember when we went to Ai overconfident and we only took a couple thousand because we were all that. And we're like, yeah, we're going to go take Ai. Jericho, pff, Ai, you're nothing. We're, we, we don't need our whole army. You guys sit and rest. And they don't realize there's all kinds of problems because one person had not been held accountable. How many know that the Lord teaches us things out of discipline and trial and they become way more salient than just reading a verse? Oh, I can look back at times in my own life where God disciplined me and God confronted me and God took me through a trial because I was doing the wrong thing or had the wrong attitude. And I'm telling you, those times are visceral to me. Those times are so personal to me where I know God confronted me and brought me to my knees and said, Paul, you are not right. And I can read scripture all day long, but I guarantee you, I can talk about those times. I can remember them. I can remember where I was, what I was wearing, what I was feeling, what it looked like, because that's when God said, stop. Now, Israel knows stop. So when they see problem, we've been blessed, we've been victorious, we've got the land, everything's great. Wait a second. What are you guys doing? And they're quick to jump to this 
uh, conclusion because they see a serious problem and they know that's a setup for trouble and they don't want any part of that. So it's from that perspective that they do what we are often called to do with one another. They hold them accountable based completely on the word of the Lord. Now there are two parts to that. Taking responsibility as believers to watch, protect, safeguard, challenge, and speak the truth to one another. Why? In order to encourage and edify and strengthen and promote maturity. It is your job and it is my job with each other to watch each other, protect each other, safeguard each other, challenge each other, and speak the truth in love when we see an issue because we love and care for each other and we want to see each other grow in the Lord. But we should only do that when we are clearly led by the Spirit and when it is clearly verified by the Word of God. We cannot go off half-cocked, well, do this and this, and I think you're out of sin and you're out of line. And Come on, we're going to get in so much trouble if we do that. Our efforts at accountability won't be corrupted by arrogance and condescension and condemnation if we follow those rules. Now, look at how Israel does this in verses 16 to 18, but especially in verse 19. And I love the attitude of verse 19. Because they say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're not supposed to build an altar. You're out of the will of God. But then they come to verse 19, and they say, listen, if you're rebelling, if this is really, this is wrong, okay? We think it is. It looks like it is. But, but if you're wrong, here's what you need to do. Not, you sinners, how dare you? That's not, no, that's not verse 19. If you're in rebellion, come back with us. Come to the tabernacle. The Lord's there. And make it right. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. We sing, Larry just said that, we sing that song. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness of the Savior. Precious blood of Jesus Christ. Beautiful song. Hey, listen. Seems, seems like it's not right here. We're really concerned. And you know what? If you guys are in rebellion, we're ready to go to war against you. But first, first, before we raise swords, come back. Come back to the tabernacle. Come back to the altar because the Father's ready to forgive. Oh, it's beautiful. Listen, that may be a statement to you this morning. You're in rebellion against the Lord. Maybe you've never trusted the Lord. Maybe this is the first time in church. I don't know. But, but you've, you've, you, you, you refuse the Lord. Sin, that's your life. That's who you are. God can't forgive me. I've done too much. Listen, don't believe that lie. Jesus died for your sins. He took your sins on himself. He defeated sin and death forever when he rose from the grave. And he will cleanse you and purify and sanctify you and change your life and give you a new nature if you will repent of your sin and trust in him so maybe that's for you this morning maybe you're in rebellion and you need somebody to say this is wrong well I pray the Holy Spirit's doing that but I'm going to try to be a vehicle 
If you're living that way, it's wrong. I'm not saying that judgmentally because in 1974, I was in the exact same place. It's wrong. It's a death sentence. It goes nowhere. But God loves you and he's willing to forgive you and he's willing to exonerate you of sin and change your life. You just have to say, Lord, I renounce my sin. I trust in you and God will change you. So maybe you need to hear that. Or maybe you've done that at some point in your life. This is probably more of us. But, but you've just fallen back. And you're kind of in a quiet, passive-aggressive rebellion of just not studying, just not praying, just not walking by the Word. You're just kind of in a malaise, just kind of, oh, I don't know, Paul, I'm, I'm here. Quit picking on me. No, come on, this is eternity we're talking about. You've fallen back. There's no life. There's no joy of your salvation. You remember a time when there was, but it's not there now. And you're stuck in sin, and it's not, it's not horrible, but it's not great. You're just kind of like Laodicea, just kind of lukewarm. Nothing really going on. I'm trying, Paul. I'm busy. I know, I'm busy too. Being busy doesn't mitigate against serving the Lord. So now's the time for you to hear the words of verse 19. Come back. Come back. Back to the presence of the Lord. You're already in the tabernacle today, so we're halfway there, right? Lord's presence here. Now it's just a matter of saying, I confess it. I confess it, Lord. I'm sorry. This is what the nine and a half tribes are calling the two and a half tribes to do. And let's be clear. This is not judgmental. They're not micromanaging their walks. This is just a check and balance. This is just, hey, we see something we don't like. We see something that seems to be offensive to the word of the Lord. So we want to check. They, they, they don't come in swords flying. They say, listen, let's do this right. Let's send the son of the priest. Let's send 10 leaders of the tribes. And let's meet them and say, here's the problem. We'll, we'll fight you. We'll go to war about this. But first, we want to make sure of what's going on. This is a powerful, listen closely now. This is a powerful spiritual principle for our marriages. It's a powerful spiritual principle for our relationship with our kids. And it's a powerful spiritual principle for the body. We are living in a very PC, permissive culture where there's so little accountability, even for the worst offenses. Highlighted in the news again this week. Somebody kills somebody. They're an illegal alien. Forget that for a second. They just committed murder. They got away with it. We see all the mess in society, all the mess in the entertainment industry, and we see major names falling now, and we find out that the executives that were in charge of keeping them accountable didn't hold them accountable. They knew about it, but for power and for profit, we're going to turn a blind eye. Just, just, it's okay. Just, you know what? We'll get through it. It'll be fine. And the ones who are in the positions of accountability didn't hold the ones who should have been accountable accountable. And now they're going to be held accountable for what they didn't do. Listen, the Lord always gets his vengeance. In families, we've seen a crisis in this generation because parents are increasingly nervous 
They're increasingly reticent to do anything, to set boundaries, to say no to their kids. They're scared of hurting their fragile little self-esteem. Somehow we all got through it. I don't know how. And that's led to rebellion. It's led to lack of personal discipline. And it's led to a growing, fast-growing disrespect for authority. It's, it's stunning. It's so bad that I saw an article this week, and I, I marked in my mind, look at that later, and I could never find it again. But I saw enough of the headline to know it was a very secular writer who said, you know what, I think it's time that we get back to the old-time standards of purity and respect and moral behavior. What a groundbreaking thought. 6,000 years we've been saying that. Oh, now you get it. Oh, good. Okay, now we'll do it. Of course. Even people who don't know Jesus, even people who don't respect God's word are now saying, you know what? We should probably have some accountability. You think? With all that's going on. What's fascinating, let's finish. What's fascinating is when you look back at this text, there's a love for the Lord. There's a love for their brothers and sisters. They say, look, we don't want to do this, but we see a problem. When we have to do that, it is awkward. I'm not going to lie. It is hard to do this. But when we're one in Christ, and we have one purpose, and we're there to edify one another, there are times we're going to have to have a conversation and go, look, I don't want to have to do this. I'm the last person. I hate confrontation. But... There is a problem. And the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So before your boss calls you out, and your wife calls you out, and your kids call you out, heaven forbid, I'm coming to you as a brother. I'm coming to you as a sister and saying, there is a problem. And I want to do it because I'm going to risk our relationship to give you faithful wounds that are going to help you. Now, when we do that, we see evidence of how powerful this is. And I want to read one more part of the text, and then we'll pray. Look at verse 21. Then the sons of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel. Oh, praise the Lord for verse 22. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and may Israel itself know, if it was rebellion, or if this was an unfaithful act against the Lord, don't save us. If we've built an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or to burn an offering of grain, or in some way offer sacrifices of peace offerings, may the Lord himself require it. In other words, he'll hold us accountable. But truly, we've done this out of concern. For a reason, saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord had made Jordan a, bound, a border between us and you, sons of Reuben and Gad, and you have no portion in the Lord. So your sons, here's the concern, they may stop fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let's build an altar, not for burning the offering or for sacrifice, because that would have been an offense to the law. Rather, it'll be a witness. Oh, praise the Lord. It'll be a witness between us and you and our generations that we're to perform the service of the Lord before Him with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your sons will not come to our sons and say, you have no portion in the Lord. 
Therefore we said, shall come about if they say to us, or this generation will say, look, there's a copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers built, not for offering or sacrifice, but for a witness. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before the tabernacle. Oh, I love that. They didn't want to come and confront this. Hey, we're concerned. Oh, wait a second. Time out. You misunderstood. The approach is humble and the response is humble. Please understand, we would never offend the Lord. This is, this is just oozing with sincerity. We're glad you came and checked this out, but, but hear this. We would never build an altar for burnt offerings because that would be an offense to God. We know that. We were there. We saw the tabernacle. We would never do that. You need to understand what we're doing. We don't want to get down the road because we're on the other side of the river. We don't want to get down the road and your kids come over and talk to our kids and say, ah, you guys are outcasts. So we want to build an altar right at the frontier, right at the edge of the Jordan. We want to build an altar. So when your kids come to talk to our kids, we say, no, we're not outcasts. We're with you. And we bought, built this altar as a witness to that. We did the right thing. We're, we're okay. It's good. Now what made that possible? It made it possible that they didn't come with arrogance. Oh, look at you. You rogue tribes. They didn't come with judgment. We're going to take you with the sword. How dare you? Before ever finding out the truth. They didn't come with, with oversensitivity and judgmentalism. They didn't give in to the enemy who was telling lies. They just said, we need to know. And listen, the best kind of accountability and confrontation is when you go to the person, they say, no, it's okay. I'm honest, I'm good. It just, you misunderstood. That's what they do. And as they were walking with the Lord, as the nine and a half tribes were walking with the Lord, this now became an effective bond of unity that they could say, we're together. And we're serving the Lord, and nothing's going to break that. And then Joshua can come back and say, my final words, make sure it stays that way. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now you choose. You choose. It's your decision. For us to be a place of refreshing, which is our motto here, for us to be a place of discipleship, for us to be effective in taking new ground and reaching people for Christ, this has to be a priority. Listen now. I know we're done. Listen now. We cannot be lax. We cannot be lazy about being accountable to the Lord and being accountable to each other because if we do that, it opens us up to the attack of the enemy. Instead, this needs to be a strength. This needs to be the law of the land in this church and among believers that we have a right, if we're listening to the Spirit, if we're following the Word of God, if we see a problem that we identify that there's something wrong there, we have the license to go and say there's a problem. And I haven't said this for a long time. I'll say it again. If somebody confronts you and you feel like it's unfair 
or you feel like it's gossip, you take that person, you say, this is fine. I want to deal with this because apparently I've hurt you. But we're going to go to pastor. We're going to go to a leader. And we're going to have a third person that's going to mediate this because I want to resolve this. There's some kind of problem here. But I want to make sure that this isn't just a conflict between you and me. Someone talks about you. You, you hear somebody talking about somebody else. Well, I heard what so-and-so did. You say, stop right there. Don't, don't, don't finish that sentence. We're going to go to that person right now. Nope. Nope. Listen, you can talk about them behind their back. We're going to go talk to them in their face. Well, I don't want to make waves. You're making waves right now. You're creating more conflict now than you are by us dealing with it. Is it true or not? It is? Let's go talk to them. If it's not true, you be quiet. You stop talking. You're not going to talk about my brother or sister that way. That's accountability. And listen, when we do that, even when, even when our intentions are good but we misread it, they don't say, how dare you? How dare you have confronted us about this? What do they do? Oh, no, praise the Lord. It's all good. We love you. You love us. Let's go serve the Lord. And God blesses them. Let's pray.